Smart. Weekend. Variety. Wireless. I've brought in some help for John DeVig regarding the Trump psychosis which is going on. Ted Zorn uh, is a communications professor at AUT, that's an institution in Auckland. He's looking at ways of trying to bring the the polarised elements of American social politics together trying to help things out. We'll try it on John Diffig, shall we? The other side of this, he's in the studio, ready to keep it, get away from here. It's my introduction. You'll have your go in a minute. John Diffig, after the uh, commercial break. Yes, that's what they call it. Good evening, everybody, and a special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. Uh, Weekend Variety Wireless. The yeah. U.S. is the least qualified guy. Who, me? Well, look what they are doing today. Yet, this guy is telling us it's better for U.S. to shut, shut up. Shut up! Shut up! This guy. And I love the way he goes, look what they're doing today. Yeah, today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John. Uh, just a heads up. After yeah. we've had a chat, yeah. uh, I am replaying an interview. Even if I had a brand new, fresh one, you other than be- the Pope comes out as... Gay or something like that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it it might have played second fiddle, but it's this guy called Ted Zorn. He's communication studies, an American guy who's looking into the the uh, communication style and methods of Donald Trump. Sure, and is trying to make some sense of it, and reckons he has some ideas, or is it? He's at least trying to just decrease the amount of fire and vitriol out there. The polarization between the Trump yeah. sides and the yeah. anti-Trump sides. Does he talk about little things that he does? Like, you know, he always says, you know that to be true. He'll <laughs> say something really stupid, you know, and he'll just go, you know that to be true. No, it's actually going into details about um, some incidents, which are quite interesting, of... Um, I could play it to you, actually. Why don't we do it? Sure. Yeah? Would you be up for that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, here he is. And the kind, and this kind of multiple perspectives analysis that I'm doing is an attempt to enable empathy, to enable people to see that there are others who have a, a different point of view. And it doesn't mean that they're evil, crazy, or unintelligent. It's just that from their own perspective, they, they have a, hold a different set of views. Now, what I've just talked about is a very formal process, but it does happen spontaneously as, as well. There's a wonderful clip that, that you could find, a video clip. You Google Black Lives Matter speaks at Trump rally in September last year, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. There were a group of Black Lives Matter protesters at a Trump rally. So, so they're chanting, they're shouting, and then they're getting shouted back at. And this amazing thing happens is that at first the guy who's running the rally at the, at the front is saying, you know, don't pay any attention to those people. Then he invites them up on stage. And the leader of, the, of that Black Lives Matter group says – Okay, I've got two minutes to talk to, with you. These are all Trump supporters out in the audience. He sort of explains his point of view and gets some catcalls from the audience, you know, some shouting back, you know, all lives matter, not just black lives matter. And, but he responds to those things, and he responds in, a, in an empathic way by saying, yes, all lives do matter. But let me explain why we say black lives matter. What you see in that is that there's a real moment where people who are 
very different from each other. They had the bikers for Trump and the Black Lives Matter guys standing there, and the, the Black Lives Matter leader was holding the child of the bikers for Trump, and they were taking pictures together and that sort of thing. So it is possible for that spontaneous dialogue to happen. But what I'm interested in is can we structure processes in which get people who are polarized into communication process where they can start to see each other as humans who have different points of view and not just as these crazy, unintelligent people on the other side who couldn't possibly be somebody that we could work with. Are you going to sign up? Hell no. For a study? <laughs> Hell no. File. File, kid. Guy's a pathological liar, and the assholes that support him are, are morons. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Bottom line? Uh, <laughs> God, I tried. <laughs> God, I tried. Come on, yeah. I was stuff it. This is your piece. Patience. Patience. Well, this is just a quick lesson in life, folks. If, if you know, it's bear hunting season in Montana, which is something, yeah, I know. They, they, they allow people to go out and kill X amount of bears. Oh, yeah. Which I, I don't know. I find revulsive, my, yeah. my, repulsive yeah. myself. Same I, here. I, I don't, yeah, I just, I don't resonate with it. Are the bears it. bothering anyone? No, but, you know, shit, I don't know, you know. But anyway, uh, so a guy's out there in Montana. He shoots a bear with a bow and arrow. Okay, so at least he's, you know, going down to some level. Um, and then he waits for he waits for a little bit, and then he can't wait any longer. So he goes over to check the bear out, and the bear jumps up and knocks the shit out of him, Ooh. and uh, put him in hospital. He's in some serious hospital. He's lucky. He's, he's in some serious danger. You know, I mean, he, he mauled the crap out of him. But the point is, like one guy said, just wait. The bear ain't dead yet. It takes a while. It's a big animal. Yeah. You shoot it with an arrow, it's not going to just die. Yeah. You've got an angry bear. <laughs> you got an angry bear. <laughs> it's almost proverbial, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. But, Wounded bear. But, yeah, even in Yellowstone National Park, a, a judge just halted that, which I find, you know, I've got hands up, man. A judge just halted. They got, they, they opened, they have a bear hunting season because, they, you know, they have, like, you know, they have more bears than they need, I guess. But still, I, I don't How know. How many bears do we need? Have, <laughs> we, asked, have <laughs> yeah. we asked the bears? Are they in on this discussion? I don't, think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. But anyway, show a little patience out there. Far out. <laughs> oh, well, he went with the bow and arrows. Yeah. So. Well, he's going trying some level. Yeah. <laughs> you people are funny with hunting. Oh, yeah. We're, yeah. You know. And Did you go hunting with your dad or something in South Dakota? Oh, hell no. Oh. No, I've never shot a gun in my life. The only time I've shot a gun is on a movie set. Okay. I'm not a gun guy, per se. But it's any... talked about just so almost trivially as an expected thing, and we'd go oh, hunting. And... Yeah. Well, my dad, grew, like I say, he, he said he grew up in South Dakota on a farm. He hunted, you know, he shot all the time. He had guns, he had rifles. I mm. mean, you know, oh, we was... do that, but we don't go purposely out. Oh, deer, that's for food. But bear, yeah. you don't have bear steaks or stuff, do you? Well, you probably do, but I mean, I still, I don't, I don't get it myself. Okay. All right. Now, another one bites the dust. Who's gone down? This is part of the Trump thing. Yeah, yeah. This is the Mueller investigation into Russia. And, you know, I mean, they keep wanting the the Russia investigation to end. But every, every other week, somebody else comes up that's doing something illegal. This guy, Sam Patton, he's a, a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and um, naturally a cohort of Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, who is also a lobbyist that just uh, got eight counts of bank and tax fraud against him. This guy, Sam Patton, they've now discovered that he f he funneled $50,000 from a Ukrainian political party member into Trump's inauguration mm. during the inauguration um, through a straw donor. And it's illegal for foreigners to co to contribute to inauguration. 
for obvious reasons. Mm. Well, anyway, this guy did it, you know, and he tried to hide it. He got caught. Uh, he lied to the FBI, and so he pleaded guilty, and now he's cooperating with the FBI. Another one, you know, because this is the first instance of actual Russian-Ukrainian money going into a Trump organization. Whether Trump knew about it or not, who knows? But time will tell. We will, you know, this yeah. is another little pitchfork of, you know, another guy. Yeah, don't get too excited. Don't get too ahead of yourselves. No, it's just another piece of the puzzle that's, you know, out there unfolding. Yeah. I find it hard to feel anything much for Trump as far as sympathy goes, unless when he's really misrepresented. How about zero sympathy? I have no zero. I have no sympathy oh, for this. Oh, and people gang up on him when it's not true. Ah, bullshit. Okay. This, guy's, this guy's done so much stuff that you don't even know about, yeah, that okay. you can't even imagine. Yeah. Bullshit, man. This guy's an asshole to the nth okay, degree. Okay, it's wrong if people misrepresent him. I mean, well, they do, but I mean, it, it is. Of course yeah. it is. But this, how often does that happen? Yeah. He was an asshole when it came to McCain, when McCain was alive. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. I'll get to that. That's, get to that's that. where he painted himself into a corner. Because McCain dies, and if he had made statements saying, oh, dear, what a wonderful man he was, everyone would have said, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. And so he doesn't, and they say, asshole, nah, nasty that's, that's man, nasty a, man. I don't a, think he can win on this one. That's a bad analogy. Nah, if he, if he would have acquiesced, it would have been fine. No, nah, that's bullshit. No, I don't buy if that. He, I don't buy that. If he would have said that he was a fine man, he's an American hero, people would have said, fine, that's what he's supposed to do as president. That They would not have said no, hypocrite. No, no, they would nah, have said he was a hypocrite nah, because they bullshit. bring out what he said last time. You're nah, not a hero. Nah, bullshit. I don't, I yeah, don't buy Yeah, they would have. I don't buy it one second. Oh, uh, okay. We'll have to <laughs> we, move on. We have to disagree that, that, on that, that one. That's the Western Front, basically, between <laughs> you and I. We're not moving. Okay, he continues to be a jerk. Yeah, well, this is just that, you know, we got to, you know, level some things. You know, now he's going around saying that if the Democrats take over the House this midterm election, which is 60 days away in November, uh, that there will be violence, that they will violently undo everything that we've done. They will violently attack your religion, that they will violently do this and do that. Fear. Just a, just yeah. a proclamation of fear. I mean, it's yeah. bullshit. If the Democrats take the House, what the violence will be about will be all the investigations into you jerk off. You know, and it won't be violence. It will just be standard procedure. Hmm. Then, you know, last year he said he fired James Comey because of the Russia thing. It's on tape. It's on audio. You can see it. It's been on YouTube for over a year. Now he's saying that Lester Holt fudged the tape. You go, well, what do you mean fudged the tape? You know, the tape is the tape. It's not fudge. It's no, there's no cuts. There's no splicing in there. It's you in an interview. Right. It's, it's like the Rodney King tape. Um, <laughs> yeah, where, yeah. When, when the police officer says, depend, yeah. depend, I'm, I'm stealing from Bill Hicks here, but it's brilliant. He says, depends how you look at it. <laughs> and he says, yeah. yeah. If you play it backwards, you see him rescuing him from an attack, putting, putting him in his, in his, in his car and seeing him on his way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But well, this is the worst this week. You know, Trump has declared that the economy is the best ever over and over and over again because the stock market's up and unemployment's down, blah, blah, blah. So what does he do this week? He says that, you know, they have to look after the budget now because it's getting out of control. And they've got to, you know, they're not going to give the federal employees their 2% raise that they're due this year. Mm. You know, and as one, com I love this, as one commentator put it, Trump is now worried about the debt. Are you kidding me? That's like John Dillinger worrying about gun violence. That's like Kim Kardashian worrying about being overexposed. 
That's like Donald Trump worrying about spray tanning a pathological line. And, you know, you got to remember, this is the asshole that gave us the United States a one and a half trillion tax cut to the top one percent of American corporations. This is the jerk off asshole who is making personally millions and millions of dollars from that tax cut. And he's going to deny some dog catcher or some guy in a control tower at an airport a two percent rise because he has to control the debt. I mean, forget it, folks. This guy's a jerk. Um, no, this is this would have been Republican policy whether it was Trump or not. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. Isn't that what Mitt Romney said he was going to do? No. No Republican would have signed in a, a, year, a, a trillion and a half tax cut. Republicans are fiscally responsible for making smaller government, less expenditure. Yeah. This jerk is signed. That's tax cut. No, that's not tax cut. This tax cut is not a tax cut. It is going to increase our national debt by over a goddamn trillion dollars. It's a tax cut that's going to increase your national debt. Well, any way you want to look at it, that is not Republican policy. This guy is a jerk. He's made millions of dollars off of his bullshit, and he's denying two percent rise to the federal employees because he's you know the greatest economy ever. Oh, but now you know what? You know what, Jack? I know you're you're struggling, and you, you know you're not making ends meet. But, you know, I, I'm a millionaire and I shit in a golden toilet. But you, my man, you have to take a 2% deficit in your pay because we got to look after the national debt. Bullshit. I have a feeling you don't like them. <laughs> well, I don't. That, that, that's just crap. Okay, Trump scandals. Oh, yeah, I just, real quick now. Just because you know we we can't, oh, yeah, sure. yeah, we, can't we can't keep up on all this stuff, but I want to give you an update. I'm just going to read off 18 scandals that you some of them you haven't heard about, and this is the tip of the iceberg. Trump scandals, tax returns, Trump tax returns, Trump's family business, Trump's dealings with Russia, the payment to Stormy Daniels, firing former FBI Director James Comey, Trump's firing of U.S. attorneys, Trump's proposed transfer ban for the military, transgender ban. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin's business dealings, White House staff's personal email use, Cabinet Secretary's travel office expenses and other misused perks, discussion of classified information at Mar-a-Lago, which is his summer retreat, Jared Kushner's ethics law compliance, dismissals, you like this one, dismissals of members of the Environmental Protection Agency Board of Scientific Counselors. He just wiped the whole goddamn board out. The travel ban, family separation policy, hurricane response in Puerto Rico, which is just devastating. His response was just a joke. Election security and hacking attempts and White House security clearances. And we, walking away from the Paris Climate Change oh, Accord. As I said, there's, there's tons more. But if the House, if the Democrats take the House, they're going to look into all that shit. It's going to be one long litigation. Some of those are just his decisions. Whatever. Aren't they? Well, no. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're decisions, but they're decisions that, that need to be looked at. Policy. Well, no, they're not policy. Pulling out of the Paris yeah. Accord was. Yeah, 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 that was, yeah. Okay. Um, stark contrast between him and what, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, John McCain. Yeah. Because this this week we had the— um, I was actually thinking Barack Obama. No, no, John McCain, because this week was, you know, a true American hero— was laid to rest. He was given full state honors, the honors that you know usually reserved for presidents. I mean, he had a memorial in Arizona where he's from, as Arizona senator for 35 years. Then his body was 
uh, transported to the Capitol, and he's lied in state for the last three days in um, the Capitol building and in the entire country, paid their respects. I mean, a lot of eulogies, a lot of everything. Uh, Barack Obama and George Bush, two guys that defeated him in his quest to become president, were speaking at the at the funeral service. Uh, every everybody in Washington was at this funeral service today. Everybody, except for Trump. Except Trump. And there was a real, you know, there was, a, you know, his absence was noted. His absence was also involved in the eulogies. Uh, McCain's daughter said that John McCain's America was always great. Mm. You know, I mean, there was a lot of references, you know, uh, to Trump. You know, and but basically. You know, the, the funeral about McCain was friendship, honor, and patriotism. And Trump has been an asshole the whole time. First of all, he lowered the flag for one day mm. and then put it right back up. Well, which is, you, you just don't do that. You wait to put it back up after the man is buried. Uh, so there was a huge uproar over that. They finally lowered it to half mass. Today, during the funeral service, Trump was at his golf course playing golf and tweeting about the Russia investigation. He's got absolutely zero, zero class. And the one thing, you know, you can say a lot of things about John McCain. Um, as a senator, he was a maverick. He was a man that stood for his own. He was an old-fashioned guy. He believed in the ideals of the, of the Senate, the rules and regulations. Uh, he, he went on both sides of the aisle. But, uh, you know, he was a Vietnam War hero. He was captured. He spent five years in prison. They tortured him so much he couldn't raise his arm, all that kind of stuff. But the other thing is, one thing that stands out to me is he was the leading guy in the committee, this leading senator that, re that got the United States to, and Vietnam to come together after the war. Because now we're, we're like, you know, we give them aid. Mm. We have a consular there. We, you know, we, it's like normal relationships. And, and, and his, his opinion was, let bygones be bygones, and you have to move forward, and you have to get on with it. And, and the guy that— and The Vietnamese put some effort into that as well. Well, they did. And they saw some sense in it as well. Of course they did. Yeah. But nobody in America—very few people in America saw any sense in that. And he was one of the driving forces that said, hey, we got to get together with people just because we had to—at that particular time. And even the guy that tortured him uh, so much came out and spoke. You know, when he was lying. In, oh, God, in, really? Lying in state, yeah. And I, and I just want to say this in all solemnity, you know, Trump is an asshole when it comes to John McCain, a true American hero. Mm. And all you morons that support a guy as scumbag and as low as Trump is, and you boo a hero like John McCain, you are a pack of assholes too. And I would hold that. I would say that to anybody that booed John McCain because you have no idea what patriotism is about. You're all full of shit. And I won't go on anymore because I'll start swearing and then you'll get upset. No, uh, no, someone else will get upset. You and I are fine <laughs> yeah. with it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. Nothing about the Catholic Church scandal this week. Huh? I mean, the, yeah, good yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good yeah, yeah. God. You what know? is it, 300 and something priests? Oh, it's a thousand abuse victims? Three H. Yeah, you know, no, it's just staggering. Yeah, that, that is staggering. That is beyond comprehension. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first man. First man. Now this is an interesting little thing here. First man is a movie. Yeah, and it's about Neil Armstrong. Oh yeah. First man on the moon, and I think I think this is quite cool what they did in a way. Um, they omitted the flag planting in the movie. I don't, yeah. you know, you know, I don't know. They said their idea was that. And Neil Armstrong was not a guy to boast. I mean, he was from Ohio. He lived on a farm. 
He went up to the moon. He made a point of taking himself out of the he, public eye because he knew he was the first man on the moon. Totally. Yeah. Totally. You never heard anything about the guy. I mean, it was like. That's so, class, actually. Uh, totally. So yeah. they decided that instead of trying to make it all about America, that they would make it about you know, humanity getting there. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I can buy that argument to a degree. Mm. I mean, it's a movie. It's a movie. Ryan Gosling is, you know. God, you paid for it, though. Well, yeah, I know we paid for it, you know. And it's like what John Kennedy said, you know, why does Rice play Texas in Not football? Not because it's easy. Because that's hard. That's yeah. why we'll get to the moon. Well, it was America who did it. <laughs> why would anyone be upset or think, I don't know, I shouldn't worry anybody. You did it. That flag was put there. Go up in the movie, put the flag in. Yeah. What's the freak out? Yeah, well, I don't know. Because, you know, interesting enough, uh, years ago on a radio station in this in this city, a guy asked about that. Who owned the moon or did anybody own the moon? And I called them. I said, of course we do. We planted a flag on it. <laughs> And we hit a golf ball off it, so screw that's, you. Yeah, that's the ownership. <laughs> and you took a golf buggy. Yeah, yeah. But you can imagine who's pissed off about this, not showing the American flag in this oh, movie. Alex Jones. No, Fox and Friends. Yeah, of course they, they've they got, are. They've gone, Unpatriotic. They've, they've gone nuts. Yeah, I'm not upset either way, but I just think it should be not a thing. Oh, it's totally a thing. You know, that's the thing that's, about America that's, 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 now. We can't laugh at ourselves. We are so uptight about anything and everything. Yeah, if we don't you get, can't even plant, plant an American flag. If we don't get credit, you know, people just go nuts. But you did it. Why not? If you're going to do a movie, it's like not having the Union Jack in, in something about the Battle of Britain. I, I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. Okay. <laughs> All right. Be nice to get off my nose. <laughs> To see the American flag there. Oh, oh see, can you it, see? <laughs> you, you, look, you can't make the case. Who freaking did the job? It yep. was America, America, America. With a little help from Germany. There should be a little German flag at the bottom. <laughs> Quakey. Actually, if you want to be accurate, a little swastika. There you go. it was um, Werner von Braun who helped you up there. Yeah, well, you know, you and, you and Marco Rubio. Oh, that's a terrible thing point. to say, because he wasn't a Nazi. Okay. <laughs> Believe that, please. <laughs> Okay, look, we'll pull up stumps here. Next up, Ted Zorn, this guy yeah, trying to heal rifts. Oh, bullshit. Yes, heal he rifts. Does. Yes, he is. Yeah. I'll give you one more thing about healing goddamn rifts. No, you haven't got any time. Oh, bullshit. Trump said today that his golf course is next to the largest man-made lake in the, in the world, folks. It's not even in the top ten. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Rather a different science report today because this came across the desk, a little seminar that was held this week out of the Massey University Albany campus. Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency has been called disruptive and unprecedented. Part of his unique approach has been his communication style with extensive use of Twitter, aggressive insults and often muddled syntax that enables multiple interpretations. Partisan rancor in the USA has been growing for some time. This presentation is of a research project in progress. It presents an analysis of Trump's communication from multiple perspectives and explores, here's the hopeful bit, the possibility of dialogue between polarized groups. And this is a seminar from Professor Ted Zorn. Ted, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Graham. Ted, what science discipline does this sort of research fall under? 
uh, communication studies. So I'm a professor of organizational communication at Massey. While political communication isn't my usual area of, of expertise, it's more business communication, this is an area that I've been very interested in, as you can tell from my accent, as an American and as an avid follower. My wife would probably say obsessive follower of, of U.S. politics, but it's communication studies. You know, I'm interested in, in the communication process and communication style and, and those sorts of things. Are you suffering? honestly, from post-Trump stress disorder? Yeah, I, I call it Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah, it's pretty severe. Okay. <laughs> well, it does seem like rich pickings because we haven't seen this sort of communication from a president before, the style anyway. So what is your research project? We understand that this is still in progress. So tell us what is in progress. I made the joke about the trunk derangement syndrome. I think that there's probably some truth to it, but I have a real concern about polarization. The basic focus of this study is that polarization has increased dramatically in the past 20 years in the U.S., and I think it's a very dangerously high level. But one of the things that polarization is characterized by is a deterioration of empathy. That is that if you and I are at the opposite extremes, it's very difficult for me to empathize with you, to see you as a reasonable person who just happens to have different views. Yeah. So the question that motivated me for this research is how can that be restored? So what I'm trying to do is an analysis that tries to understand alternative perspectives on, in this case, Trump's communication, and look at the possibility of dialogue between people who disagree, who come from those, those polar uh, opposite perspectives. Yeah, it does seem as though it is becoming more and more intractable that one side will not, shall not, cannot empathize with the other. Yeah. That is the real dangerous thing, isn't it? It is. It's not just perception. The, the Pew Charitable Trust does a lot of research on this and, and other uh, issues in the in the U.S. If you look at the at the research that they've done on people who are engaged in politics, how people identify with political positions, you see a dramatic difference in the last 20 years in terms of the sort of median position for Democrats would be center left, and 20 years ago, median position for Republicans would be center right, and now those medians have just you know, moved way apart in turn, and so you have the, a cluster on the left and, a, and another cluster on the right, and a, and a much smaller group in the middle. Just the opposite of what you saw 20 years ago. I suppose a home run question might be for one on either side of this: What do you want? Let's just say, for this case, someone mm. that's in Antifa protesting against people they say are Nazis. Yeah. Um, I would just ask, what do you want? And the answer is, in order to get there, sometimes you think this could be nothing but civil war. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly looks that. I mean, I think that's the you know you get that sort of extreme on the on the left with the Antifa and the extreme on the right with um, the white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Yeah. Yes, I, and I think so. There is a certain group of people who are looking for a fight and looking and see conflict as, that sort of armed conflict as the only solution. And, and that's what's so dangerous about polarization. I mean, if the, a democratic process depends on people believing that while we may disagree, that there are reasonable people who are on the other side who just happen to have a different set of solutions, different set of beliefs. But if we're polarized and you lack that empathy, you know, what happens is, is we demonize each other, right? I, I see you as either evil or insane or, or lacking intelligence, and, and therefore there's very little hope for reaching any kind of a solution or, you know, accepting a, a solution even if it's not the one that I would have supported.
from one of Bill Maher's shows where Chris Matthews, a very famous CNN anchor, let's see each other's point of views. Here he is. I think another part of it is, uh, you know, when you piss on somebody for about 50 years, they get the message. And referring to the white working class as deplorables, and Obama, my hero, saying things like they cling to their guns and their religion. Condescension works. And when you hear there's a party on, but you haven't been invited to it for about 50 years, you get the message you're not wanted. We bit. can disagree, but yeah, I think but it's a powerful fact yeah. that they said, okay, we've got the minorities on our side, we've got the rich people on our side, the sophisticated Hollywood people in our crowd. Hillary so was why am I going to ignore the rest of it? Hillary's referring to the racism as being deplorable. You're going to pick a point. And it was one of those moments, though, that she finally just said what was okay, in her well, mind. You know, maybe in her and mind. And it was great got to say it. Well, we, we never quote the second half of her sentence, which I think was the wrong part. She called them deplorables, and she said they were irredeemable. That part isn't true. No, you can never have the attitude that people well, are irredeemable. That's where the disconnect happened. Okay. There's a reason why all those white working class okay. people voted for a bad candidate. Don't dump on them. Love them a little. Okay. Because that's how you might get them back. So, but you're not going to get them back by dumping on them more. And that was along with Michael Moore, who's obviously way far left of Chris Matthews. But I thought that was an interesting, nice bit of empathy. Stop pissing on people. <laughs> uh, well, that's right. And there's, a, I mean, one of the things that, that really Im impressed me, which sort of makes the same argument as Chris Matthews, did, there's a wonderful book by a sociologist named Arlie Hochschild called Strangers in Their Own Land. She started doing the research, um, sort of living in Louisiana before the Trump phenomenon really started to come into play, but it overlapped with that, in other words, towards the end of her stay there. She sort of came to this very similar conclusion to Chris Matthews, is that there are a group of people, working class, white Christians, is mainly the group that she was looking at. They felt like they'd worked hard, played by the rules that worked to get ahead, but they weren't getting ahead. You know, seeing their lives economically stagnant, they felt culturally challenged, you know, with, mm. with gay marriage and a number of other cultural issues that they would disagree with. And a lot of threat by immigration, feeling like they're being demographically replaced or, you know, no longer in a, a majority situation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think trying to understand that point of view is, is really critical for ever being able to reach across. Chris Matthews talked about Hillary Clinton's comment about the basket of deplorables, which was politically, it was a horrible thing for her to say and, mm. and really did huge damage to her. Um, but I think it is the kind of thinking that, um, uh, you know, really does alienate and, and sort of make that, that divide between the polls even more pronounced. It makes me wonder how much Trump is the problem. He's the easy go-to person because he's, to me, he's a pretty odious character. <laughs> but, but was he a symptom more than a cause? You feel like one of those people you've just described, across Matthews just described, they go into the voting booth and for once they can say, stuff you. Yeah, and I think many people for voting for Trump was sort of a middle finger at political establishment. Is Trump the symptom or a cause? I think it's probably both. You know, many people would have said that Trump is sort of a, I suppose, one in a in a line of anti-establishment in many ways, sort of non-rational. I don't mean irrational, but but you know, focusing on really emotional appeals mm. like Sarah Palin, for example, and to some degree, and to a lesser degree, George W. Bush. Yeah, he's not completely out of the blue, right? I mean, it, this comes in the context of this polarization happening over a long period of time. It was huge polarization in the uh, after the Iraq War started with with George W. Bush, and there was even greater polarization uh, in Obama's era. And and now, as I said, I think it's 
reached sort of a fever pitch in the Trump era, but it's it's not something that just happened in a vacuum. It, it happened as a result of a whole set of social dynamics over a long period of time. I actually take my hat off to Barack Obama. I think it was the day or day or two after the election of Trump. He was very calm. No, 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 no. Don't boo, don't yell. In 10 days, the world will witness a hallmark of our democracy. No, 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 no. The peaceful transfer of power from one freely elected president to the next. This, again, is a very rare thing to spot today. Yeah, it is. You know, I think many people who were and, and still are very sort of anti-Trump were, were hoping that that, uh, that sort of presidential trying to bring people together is something that he would take on. And it obviously it's been sort of war with the media and and with others from, from day one with the protests, you know, immediately after his, uh, his yeah. election and Now, the study, you're going to get into the communication language of Trump. He's fresh in as much as he can bypass the traditional media and probably engage many more people just by using Twitter. Is this a symptom of Twitter being there or Trump being there? Probably both. I think he... He not only distrusts the media, he finds it to his political advantage to put the media as one of the, the enemies, the enemies of the state, as, as, as he has, has said, the enemy of the people. And Twitter's not the only way that he's going around the media. His rallies are the, are the other way, right? I mean, he, yeah. he's, he, he's sort of still in campaign mode going around the country doing these, these rallies, which is, again, unprecedented. So, you know, while Obama used Twitter, it was a much more measured, and I'm sure everything that he put out was um, vetted by his, his communication manager. Whereas, you know, Trump, in, in fact, the analysis that I've seen is that you can actually pick out the tweets that Trump himself puts out versus the ones uh, from his staff. He actually uses a different phone and, you know, he uses an Android and the staff uses an iPhone so that you can actually pick out the different tweets that he puts out. So, you know, he's going around the, the media in part because – in large part because he doesn't trust the media and also because, you know, it's politically convenient for him to put the media up as the bogeyman is putting out the fake news and, and the other things that he says. Do you think he has any reason to distrust them? Sure. You, you know, he, he has – been at war with the media. Was it their fault? Is it his fault? Is it a a bad combination? It's very difficult, I think, from the day after his inauguration when uh, his communication director comes out and says, we had the the largest crowd, period, and um, which is an easily disprovable lie and one of many easily disprovable lies that have come on. And yet the to blame the the media for challenging that easily disprovable lie. Yeah. I put a lot of the blame on Trump and the administration, but does he have reason to distrust the media? Yes, because at this point there is a war between the the media and and Trump. That crowd thing, that really felt like trying to argue with a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I didn't really know what, what diff it would make. You know, okay, off you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, being big and being the best is, is very important to uh, Mr. Trump. <laughs> is anyone surprised, though? Because yeah. we know where he comes from. He's a very wealthy yeah. reality TV star with some history in fake wrestling. You know, we, we, we knew what we were getting when he stepped up, and which is why so many people thought, well, it's just not possible. When he put his head in the ring for the Republican primaries, most people at that point said, well, it'll never get through that. And then when he got through that, well, it'll never beat Hillary Clinton. And, mm. you know, here we are at the end.
Okay. As a communication scientist, what do you make of the way he communicates? His syntax is alluded to in the blurb. There are a number of, I think, really interesting features about his communication. So I would say, first of all, it's a it's, it's a very grandiose style. There is a lot of boastfulness in, in his communication. It's a very informal style. You compare it, Obama could be relaxed. George W. Bush could, could be relaxed in, in their communication. But when I say that Trump's style is informal, it is very improvisational. You know, he will go off on a tangent in some cases that don't seem to have anything to do with where the sentence started or where the you know where his thoughts started. You've heard the Sam Harris quote. I thought it was quite prescient, actually, a nice little description. It is. It is a nice description. When I hear Trump speak, I hear someone very often getting prompted by his own misstatements to complete a thought in a way that he clearly didn't intend to, which is to say that the thing he's now saying doesn't reflect anything he believed or even thought about before. But he's saying it now because the last phrase he spoke just launched him there. Right? It's, it's as though he's speaking in verse and he's forced again and again to complete the rhyme. It's like he says, there was once a man from Nantucket and he's got to finish the thought. Right? So he says, who always carried a bucket. But he didn't know he was going to say bucket. And now he's stuck with it. And now he'll go to the mat defending Bucket. And it's the rhyme of ignorance and error and bombast. Just listen to the man speak. It's unbelievable. I think it very, sums up very nicely that sort of improvisational, very loose uh, kind of fragmented style that you, that you see with Trump. Mm. That does, in some way, sweep a little of the assumption of malice away and replace it with he just doesn't know how to think or talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, in this this research that I'm doing, as I said, I'm trying to look at the at his communication style from multiple perspectives, and, and so I sort of look at it. And I, this is a technique that I've used in in other research as well. So sort of look at it from three perspectives: a functional, and that is basically it works. So why does it work? Why do when people say he's effective as a communicator, what do they mean by that? Right. Uh, and then there's a sort of idealistic perspective, and that would be what his supporters say. Um, and then there's a, a critical perspective, and that would be his detractors. But with this very loose improvisational, limited vocabulary, lots of repetition, fragmented, there are people who relate to that. I mean, that, that see that he is speaking to them, not in an elite um, you know, Obama got really criticized for being aloof and elite, yep. right? that he, he talked like a professor. Trump, on the other hand, doesn't do that. He, he says what he thinks, and, pe- and many people love that, this sort of informal, somebody that you're having a beer with but happens to be quite a character, sort of a style that, that really does appeal to people. That informal style is, is part of his character. It's, it's, very, it's a very provocative style, very combative, non-PC, and again, that is something that works for a number of people. I mean, obviously, many people are offended by what seems like racism, which seems like xenophobia. There's a large number of people who cringe at what they see as uh, politically correct speech and the restrictions that politically correct speech puts on them. And for them, Trump's thumbing his uh, nose at that politically correct set of attitudes uh, is something that very much appeals to him. And it goes back to you know, what we were talking about earlier with the, this, this white Christian working class who feel like they can't even talk the way that, that they were comfortable talking before. And so they feel like they're being judged harshly just for being themselves. You know, another quality of Trump's communication, that it is highly ambiguous. And this comes from it being informal, from limited vocabulary and repetitious. And you, you're often not quite sure what he says. I mean, one of the things that I've often thought 
in terms of you know all these questions about uh, whether Trump is putting himself in legal jeopardy by some of the things he says. Well, that may be true, but because he is often so ambiguous about what he says, it's not quite clear. You can often take what he says in, in multiple ways yeah. uh, because of that lack of clarity. Yeah, and yeah. That, that, in, that informality in, in his talk, and that he does sort of talk from the hip, and it's, not, it's often not clear. Whereas you know, someone like Obama was very measured in, in what he said, thoughtful and, and measured and, and used a much more formal style. And again, that put many people off. But it tended to be more precise, and you knew what he meant, and there weren't these questions, you know, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Something I've noticed with the ambiguity, it allows people to take the position that they prefer and use exactly the same quote from opposite points of view. (laughs) Yeah. One of the most interesting things to me in in watching Trump speak, and and as well as his his tweets, and then uh, his administration trying to explain those the next day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hearing press secretaries at those sort of meetings, I thought dancing bears were illegal. (laughs) Can we figure out what he actually does think because of the ambiguity of what he says? I think the way you figure that out is through the the patterns. Uh, While there's always room for interpretation, um, but I think what you see are repeated patterns, and and that's where the the clarity starts to come through. All right. Uh, You do talk about the possibility of improving the possibilities for dialogue. Yeah. Again, comes from a, some of the research that I've done in the past on dialogue. And we use that term dialogue in lots of different ways. We use it in everyday talk to mean two-way communication, right? That lets you and I have a, have a dialogue about this. Yeah. But really what I'm referring to is uh, there's a um, set of communication practices that are often quite structured, getting people together who have uh, – different beliefs and who are groups in, in conflict and getting those people together to explore each other's point of view. So it's often often this kind of structured dialogue is, you know, you have a facilitator who, who tries to set up a, a set the scene, tries to create a non-threatening communication cli- uh, climate, get people to explore each other's differences without trying to resolve them. So it's not conflict management. It's saying you disagree with each other, but let's try to understand suspend judgment, really try to learn from the differences. And one of the things that you see in that kind of a process in in multiple settings is that people do change their views through that. The research that we did, and when I was at Waikato University a few years back, we did some studies using dialogue around controversial science, gene splicing and cloning and, and those sorts of things, which was very much in the news. People in the room with the scientists who did that work structured this dialogue and then also in, in alternative situations, just had those people in the room, on you know, lay people, non, non-scientists in the room, just talking about this kind of controversial science. And what you saw is when you have a group of people just talking amongst themselves without the scientists there, their attitudes tended to become more anti the science and anti the scientists. They were more negative towards the science and more negative towards the scientists. You get them together with the scientists and have that kind of a conversation, just the opposite happens. Their attitudes become more positive towards the science and more positive towards the scientists. They have more empathy, which is sort of my, my key theme here. And the same thing happens with the scientists, by the way. It's not just the, the, the non-scientists. You would think scientists who study this stuff all the time they would never change. That's the sort of thing that I'm thinking about here with the polarization is that polarization results in a deterioration or a disabling of empathy and dialogue. And the kind, and this kind of multiple perspectives analysis that I'm doing is an attempt to enable empathy, to enable people to see that there are others who have a, a different point of view 
And it doesn't mean that they're evil, crazy, or unintelligent. It's just that from their own perspective, they, they have a, hold a different set of views. Now, what I've just talked about is a very formal process, but it does happen spontaneously as, as well. There's a wonderful clip that, that you could find, a video clip. You Google Black Lives Matter speaks at Trump rally in September last year, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. There were a group of Black Lives Matter protesters at a Trump rally. They went there to protest, and so they're chanting, they're shouting, and then they're getting shouted back at. And this amazing thing happens is that at first the guy who's running the rally at the at the front is saying, you know, don't pay any attention to those people, you know, basically ignoring them. And then he invites them up on stage. And they come up on stage, and this uh, and the leader of the of that Black Lives Matter group says, "Okay, I've got two minutes to talk to, with you." These are all Trump supporters out in the audience. He sort of explains his point of view and gets some catcalls from the audience, you know, some shouting back, you know, all lives matter, not just Black Lives Matter. And but he responds to those things, and he responds in a in an empathic way by saying, "Yes, all lives do matter." But let me explain why we say Black Lives Matter. You know, what you see in that is that I'm sure there's still lots of negativity among some people, but there's a real coming together, a moment where people who are very different from each other, they had the bikers for Trump and the Black Lives Matter guys standing there, and the the Black Lives Matter leader was holding the child of the bikers for Trump, and they were taking pictures together and that sort of thing. So it is possible for that spontaneous dialogue to happen. But what I'm interested in is can we structure processes in which get people who are polarized into a communication process where they can start to see each other as humans who have different points of view and not just as these crazy, unintelligent people on the other side who couldn't possibly be somebody that we could work with. I hope you understand it when I say I hope it doesn't depend on it because (laughs) um, America does need to heal a bit. Um, Although... I watched a documentary about 1968 America this week, and it's a long way from that, isn't it? Yeah. I'm old enough to remember 1968, and we tend to think things are horrible now, but, God, I remember as a, as a kid just being scared in 1968, assassinations of Robert Kennedy and uh, Martin Luther King and the riots were happening and so on. So Vietnam, the Cold War, mm-hmm. the threat of exactly. it. Exactly. As I said, I do have a bit of the Trump derangement syndrome, but also as someone who cares about the political process and, and trying to create a place where democracy can work, I think this sort of you know looking for ways to close that polarization gap is quite important. Good for you, Professor Ted Zorn, Albany Massey Campus. Thank you. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. A fresh outsider, the other side of news, sport and weather, coming up at 11 o'clock. And I suppose it should come with a proviso. Uh, Well towards the end, though, some of it is rather a difficult listen. It's the story of Te Rauparaha, and it's an amazing tale. They called him the Napoleon of New Zealand, Maori leader, and an amazing migration, a fighting retreat, I think is uh, what some people call it. It's what I do. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of slaughter and amazing New Zealand history from the early 1800s, 1820s, to be told after New Sport and Weather coming at you after the pips.